0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 9th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Ukraine's president continues his impromptu European tour. Australia realises that allowing Chinese-made spy cameras on government property might not have been that bright a move, and French winemakers appear to have trod too many grapes. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Nadine Batchelor-Hunt and Philip Mallier will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic, about his new book on conspiracy theories and why people believe them. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Nadine Batchelor-Hunt, broadcaster and political correspondent, and by Philippe Mallier, professor of French and European politics at University College London. Hello to you both.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: Uh, Nadine, first of all, you have a new job since we last saw you.
1: Yes, I'm a um, politics reporter at Politics Home. So I started on Monday.
0: And what has that actually involved so far?
1: Um, largely trying to set up lots of meetings with, with lots of MPs and special advisors and that sort of stuff. So just getting my teeth stuck into the secret world of Westminster have all the whispers and how everyone communicates there.
0: Are you going to go and try try to go through the entire House of Commons in <laughs> alphabetical order?
1: It, there's a tent, it's kind of like the perfectionist in me kind of thinks, well, I just want to tick them all off because what if I've missed somebody? But there's so many. And then, you know, for every... MP, there's a press officer or a SPAD or whatever, I'm just sticking to my interest areas at the moment. But who knows, maybe I can set a record and meet every single one.
0: Um, I'm not sure I'd wish that on anybody. (laughs) Um, Philippe, you are about to go hiking or walking or sauntering or strolling in Italy?
1: Yes,
2: pretty soon and I really look forward to it because I've been very much London based the past few weeks, if not months, and very much into sinking into university routine. So it's a nice trail with my best friend, which is always nice, three days, uh, near Pescara in on the east coast of italy and it's a kind of a three-day walk along you know along the coast so uh, i think it's a nice prospect Been making all the bookings
0: are you confident you'll still be best friends after three days walking together we shall see it's a big, <laughs> it's a
2: big test we will have lots of time to to discuss things yes absolutely
0: Uh, Well, we will start the show proper with the brisk European tour currently being undertaken by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. From London earlier this week, he has swung by Paris and proceeded to Brussels. While Zelensky's addresses have, as always, been astutely tailored to his audiences, they have been short on subtext. Ukraine wants more weapons to fight Russia at the front and greater sanctions on Russia to eat away at its assault from the rear. Speaking to the European Parliament, he made the point, not for the first time, Time that his country is fighting a continent's war for it. Here is some of what President Zelensky had to say.
3: The horizon never stays clear for a while. Once the old evil is defeated, the new one is attempting to rise its head. Do you have a feeling that the evil will crumble once again? I can see in your eyes. Now, we think the same way as you do. We know freedom will win.
0: President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine speaking to the European Parliament. Um, Nadine, am I right in thinking you were at the Westminster Hall speech?
1: Yeah, I was. It was kind of a weird day because no one knew it was going to happen. So everyone in Westminster had their days planned out and then it was like suddenly, oh yeah, by the way the most significant geopolitical leader in the world right now is about to make a visit. So everyone was kind of running around uh, Westminster and the the Speaker of the House was trying to encourage as many people to get into Westminster Hall as possible to go and watch um, his speech. And yeah, it was kind of surreal you know, he stood on the steps of Westminster Hall and there's this massive stained glass window and um and there were like you know the absolutely packed staffers, like MPs, employees like were queuing around the block to try and get in. Because it was like it was kind of like a last minute kind of concert vibe. Like everyone wanted to see him. Um but yeah, it was really rousing. And I think the helmet thing when he got this helmet mm. out was a bit of a I don't think anyone expected that. No one really knew what to do about that. This
0: it. was the fighter pilots helmet he yeah, gave to the yeah Very subtle, mm. um,
1: subtle request for more uh planes. But yeah, no, it was very, very historic and you did feel like you were really part of history. I was also in the room when um, he gave his first address to Parliament via video link so I also saw that uh, that was really cool but obviously to see him in the flesh and actually understand him this time because when he gave his speech to Parliament last time, this uh, us mere journalists weren't allowed headsets so we just had to sit there and watch him talking Ukrainian <laughs> and I like, had no idea what he was saying so it was nice to understand what he said this time
0: um, I, I have myself been in the room at one of his video linked uh, addresses. He was in Kiev I was at the uh, GlobeSet conference in Bratislava last year, and and I mean, it seems weird in that context, Philippe, to think of yourself as being part of an audience because basically anybody who wants to watch this on a laptop right now is part of this is getting as good a view as this as I am. In fact, probably a better one because that hall was absolutely packed to the gunnels. <laughs> I could barely see a thing, but. When you think about Zelensky as as a communicator, uh, Philippe, it's, it's something he's clearly very good at. Is he just one of those natural communicators? Some people have it, some don't. Or is there something about his particular circumstances which is giving him gravitas? Would any president of Ukraine in this situation be attracting quite the same notices? He is certainly a very good communicator. I think uh, it's well, very well known. He,
2: he, he was a stand-up comedian before mm. embracing a political career, although he was a was a comic, so probably. And now he needs to to sort of embrace more serious topics. But I think he's not only a very good and very effective communicator, but also he's very good at handling symbols. And I Mm. think this is, I think, his only weapon, so to speak, because diplomacy and handling symbols, I think it's a bit of a cliche, but it was the tone of the speech in Westminster was very Churchillian. And I think it was uh, on purpose, of course, with reference even to the king being a, 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 a jet uh, um, pilot, uh, you know, as a way, of course, to request uh, more weapons. A fact which is very interesting. It's only the fourth time that statesmen came to address uh, um, uh, MPs and Lords there. And the first, the first who started it was Charles de Gaulle in nineteen sixty, mm-hmm. followed by by uh, Nelson Mandela and Barack Obama. So I think it's is the fourth only. Not many of them had had that sort of chance to, to do that, and I think he did it very well. And um, so I suppose he is is a good communicator because, of course. Uh, the situation detects him to be to be a good communicator he, he can't be he can't be a poor communicator he can't afford it but I think he's very good also he probably must have very good speech writers because mm. I think uh, the, the speech when you read it I wasn't there and I think probably I didn't have the chance of you know, attending it but when you attend it or simply when you watch it I'm a political scientist but you you can't help you know that have feeling very strong emotions you know you set aside your your normally the, the kind of objectivity you must maintain when you sort of try to to interpret the political actions in, in, in the making and you, you're just uh, struck how good he is and how impressive he
0: is. Um, Nadine, the bigger question, um, is he going to get what he wants? Specifically want what he wants is F-16s and, and that is a big commitment because Ukrainian pilots will have to be trained to fly the things. Uh, it is no small change the logistics involved in maintaining them and keeping them airborne and how ever far anybody tries to maintain that delineation between merely aiding Ukraine and being an active participant in its defence. That line gets a bit blurry at that point, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, these massive pieces of equipment. I mean, a similar argument was said for tanks, you know, providing mm-hmm. lots of tanks. It's the same kind of level of um, artillery. But, you know, I, I do. it's difficult to say. If the training isn't there for the Ukrainian, um, you know, fighter pilots, then you can say, well, they're not going to provide the jets. If the training is provided, then I, I find it difficult how they they wouldn't provide the jets eventually. But I don't know, it's become this weird sticking point um, that I'm not sure when it's going to be resolved, but it's clear that Ukraine really does need these jets to continue. I mean, you know, God knows how they've still managed to hold out. We're nearly a year in, mm. and they're going up against a superpower, or, you know, what once was a superpower, still got a very powerful army. Um, and they're just like this little country, you know, going around the world asking for help. And I think you, Zelensky has had to learn to be this amazing communicator because his words are the only thing that has rallied people around him. Um, But yeah, what happens with this fighter jet stuff, I'm not entirely sure, but my instinct is that eventually they'll probably be sent over, but with the caveat there needs to be that training for the for the pilots.
0: And, and possibly after the same amount of faffing and dithering we saw re the tanks I mean the, the nervousness here Philippe and it was the same nervousness that attended the decision to send challengers and leopards to Ukraine is worry that this will be what Russia somehow regards as a completely unacceptable escalation but have we passed the point of really caring what Russia thinks is an unacceptable escalation? I think we're clearly beyond that point and I think it's become more than ever an occasion Academic
2: point. I think it's become even a very lame excuse on the part of Western powers and beyond who uh, which are saying well we uh, there's a risk of escalation let's call it appeasement and appeasement hasn't worked with with putin you know there were uh, uh, western powers uh, germany and france notably to mention them who for a very long time macron schultz thought that by keeping a dialogue with uh, putin he would sort of see through the situation uh, uh, would sort of back off no of course not uh, it's the opposite in fact and i think also it's always good to listen to the, the victims here and the victims mm. are uh, the victims of integration the Ukrainians Ukrainians are requesting th- those weapons I think this argument is completely lame and, and, and completely uh, discredited of uh, long range w- w- uh, weapons you know and and uh, leading to escalation I, I think on the contrary the, the, there's a strong case to be made about let's give those long range weapons artilleries the sooner the better because if we want to put an end to that war that war of aggression the misery of the, the Ukrainian people and also the threat that Putin's regime rep- represents for for democracies across the world. I think it's, it's time to act so let's not make the same
0: mistakes all over again. Well, to Australia now, where the always valuable question, what could possibly go wrong, has at last been asked about the hundreds of Chinese-made surveillance cameras installed at government locations. Australia's Defence Minister Richard Miles has confirmed that all such cameras will be removed once an audit is complete. The United States and the United Kingdom have already conducted similar purges. The question of Chinese surveillance has of course been high on the news agenda this week thanks to the saga of the rogue balloon which drifted across the United States before being shot down in the least impressive dogfight in the history of aerial combat. Um, Nadine, with something like this, it strikes me and not necessarily just as an Australian, I think just as, you know, somebody based with an elementary grasp of anything, as a a bigger story that these cameras were put up in the first place. Like somebody at some point must have gone... What, Chinese made surveillance cameras on Australian government property? Yeah, that's fine. Can't see a problem.
1: It kind of feels a bit like with Germany with Nord Stream as well. It's kind of like, did no one say, mate, what are you doing? Like, this is not going to end well. Like, we know that Russia are not a friendly state and you're making yourself really reliant on them. Yeah, I mean, it also feels there's been this huge complacency in the West about China. um, And it's eventually going to come to our head. It's, you know, as you say, these things should never have been installed. We've got similar issues here. I think Mm -hmm. we backed off on the Huawei stuff, but Mm -hmm. after a lot of pressure um and perhaps this is like you know signs the west obviously western inverted commas australia <laughs> isn't necessarily in the west per se um but they're taking I mean, it spiritually, spiritually if not geographically. yeah yeah culturally colonially um in the west um but yeah and obviously this chinese spy balloon i feel like became a bit of a meme mm. potentially from reducing the seriousness of it but um yeah i think there needs to be this taking of china seriously i think you're starting to see it a lot in the uh, British Parliament, people like Ian Duncan-Smith, Ms Garney, etc. They're quite outspoken about it, particularly because of the, the genocide in Xinjiang. But yeah, hopefully this is a move towards questioning a little bit of the kind of Chinese infrastructure we've been injecting in when we know they're not a very um, friendly state, let's say that
0: way. Philippe Nardine, I think, makes a, a couple of good points there, both about the fact that the balloon, on the one hand, was ridiculous and a quite enjoyable you know, comic opera saga in many respects, but It was also kind of a symbol of that, because you you had the United States losing its mind over one balloon, and this is a country in which, I don't know, roughly 90 million people have voluntarily downloaded TikTok onto their phone. Um, do, Do you think the balloon maybe serves as some sort of warning? Absolutely.
2: I think what what really struck me is the time it uh, taken by the US government to finally uh, shoot it down. You know, it days, you know, the, the balloon was able to,
0: to be in US uh, the, the, airspace. The, the point was made quite eloquently by Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, that, I mean, it was big and when it came down, the debris field was seven miles across. Okay. So you, don't, you don't want that landing okay, on someone's house. Okay, fair enough. House. So they,
2: they have to to, 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 to yes, of course. But uh, still, I think the naivety, uh, sort of Western power, I was discovering that yes, uh, through a technology, modern technology and cam- uh, surveillance cameras, you could spy on on uh, on on your other 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 governments or other countries. I think it's it's really staggering. Really, this this sort of a uh, discover that I, I think there's a lot of complacency, but also naivety. And the, the whole idea that since you know China has become a major economic power, of course, uh, one has to do business with China. One one can't ostracize China, whatever China does. And I think we, again, we the previous topic, we were discussing the mistakes made with regards to Putin's regime for a very long mm. time. And I think we, we're still sort of making the same mistakes. Uh, China hasn't uh, waged any, any war, to my knowledge, uh, until now. But I think on the economic front you know there's a lot of mistakes which have been made thinking that you know because uh, we uh, sort of uh, uh, turn a blind eye to, to sort of s- certain malpractices of, of China uh, notably uh, with regards to, to, to sort of uh, industrial uh, uh, spying on, on, on other states, I think it's, it's a big mistake yes and I think well probably it's the beginning of the end uh, the beginning of the end for, for China spying on, uh, through its technology because I think we had the same story a few months ago in the US and in the UK as well. I hmm. think the UK finally withdrew a number of surveillance cameras which were Chinese made. Indeed. And in very, very sensitive areas, you know, in governmental areas. So I, I think... think
1: including in fridges as well, I think there was a concern that a lot of the tech that had been installed in things as, as simple as fridges... Could also have been hacked by. That was a story I mean, I discussed on a radio. I mean, the radio it, it, show, it,
0: take, it takes us into another subject, but I, I am absolutely lost as to why anybody should need or want a refrigerator which has the capacity to communicate with the outside world. Yeah,
1: I think some of them you can get Facebook on, or something. Yeah, I, I,
0: I, I basically just want my fridge to keep the milk cold and not explode. <laughs> that's 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 really all I ask. Um, but Nadine, we've been complacent about Russia as we've been about complacent about china for the same reasons haven't we because it was convenient and cheap for us to be complacent about them
1: yeah well that that's exactly it i mean the security services have been warning about particularly with russia and russia really hasn't been shy about you know pushing the boundaries, you know the Alexander Litvinenko stuff, Salisbury poisoning, like you know the the various invasions they did. No one seemed you know um, interference with elections. No one seemed to take it that seriously. And it feels like with China, um, obviously their influence is immense. Their economy is huge. I mean, I imagine a lot of the objects on this table right now were made in China. We're, we're heavily reliant on China mm. as a as a um, as an economy. But there does need to be this at what at a point where p- the countries reflect and be like, yes, it is simpler. Just to bury your head in the sand, but look at how it where the trajectory could end. So hopefully there is this kind of awakening to the point. And you make a good point about TikTok. Like that is kind of surreal. The amount of people that use that app, and we know that China has been quite um, quite um, opaque about. That, how much access they get to the data on that, whether or not they'd even be able, the TikTok would even be able to declare if they've had access to it. So, you know, there's a lot going on. And I think potentially this could be a, a you'd hope a watershed moment for the situation.
0: Nadine and Philip, thank you both very much for the moment. We will have more from you both shortly. Now, among coverage of conspiracy theories, which has become a depressingly necessary genre of journalism in recent years, one key question often languishes unanswered, i.e. how can anyone possibly believe any of this obvious hogwash. Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic magazine, has given the matter more thought than most, and the fruit of his deliberations is the new book, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. I spoke to Michael earlier and began by asking him if, what with one thing and another, conspiracy theories really still qualified as fringe beliefs.
3: It's very mainstream, and the central thesis of my book is that conspiracy theories... As a phrase which has taken on pejorative uh, valence to it uh, is incorrect. Actually, everybody believes some kind of conspiracy theories, if you ask enough about enough of them, because, in fact, a lot of conspiracy theories turn out to be true. There really are conspiracies that go on. Uh, Just note the Twitter reds that have been been released the last two weeks since Elon bought Twitter, you know, of all the kind of behind the scenes shenanigans that were going on <laughs> censorship and the latest one that the FBI. Was, and the CIA were involved in in twi- in censoring people on Twitter and controlling feeds you know that's a kind of a conspiracy because it's by definition it's going on behind the scenes in secret no transparency manipulating things without people's consent or knowledge that is a conspiracy and then you can just go backwards from there the Afghanistan papers the Pentagon papers WikiLeaks have all revealed to what extent governments lie to their citizens about invasions and wars and revolutions And and the manipulation of elections in foreign countries, which the CIA has done, assassination of foreign leaders, which the assassin, which the CIA has done, surveilling people without a warrant from a judge, uh, which is illegal in the United States. And, And yet our own government has done this, you know, Watergate. Iran-Contra, it's go all the way back to the First World War assassination of Franz Ferdinand that triggered the First World War. You know, these are real conspiracies. So my point is that it's not irrational to to think that uh, a lot of conspiracy theories are true, even though some of them aren't. You know, so for example, I think JFK was assassinated by a lone assassin. I don't think there was any conspiracy to kill him, um, but. Historically, the assassination of foreign leaders, the assassination of political leaders is not uncommon, well, <laughs> You know, so it's not irrational to think that.
0: But, but do you think there actually is a continuum of any sort there? Because you are quite right, of course, that uh, you know governments and corporations do things in secret behind the scenes uh, of dubious legality or morality all the time, but... Is there a relationship between that and believing something, you know, just straightforwardly fantastic, like the mythology behind QAnon, which has absolutely no root in reality whatsoever?
3: Indeed, there's a spectrum of conspiracy theories, and this is one of the ways we have of determining which ones are true or false or indeterminable. I have a whole chapter on it. I called the conspiracy detection kit. So the grander in scope it is, the less likely the conspiracy theory is to be true. You know, like Volkswagen conspiring to cheat the emission standards in Europe—that's a real conspiracy, but it's very narrowly focused. You know, they just want to make more money, uh, or you know, some uh, government agent uh, agency manipulating a foreign country election to favor the dictator that's favorable to our interests. That's a very narrowly targeted conspiracy. But if you're talking about, you know, Bill Gates wants to take over the world or, (laughs) you know, George Soros wants to monitor everybody on the planet or manipulate wars, you know, these are just not likely to be true because they're so grand, because that's not how the world works. No one can control the economy, control politics, control the world. It's just impossible. So, and also, the more people that have to be involved or the more elements that have to come together just right for the conspiracy to be true, um, the less likely it is to be true. Because again, people are incompetent. They can't keep their mouth shut. You know, whistleblowers, insiders tell people what's really going on. You know, WikiLeaks is an example, or the Pentagon Papers, whatever. We find out about uh, things that are going on. So here we are, you know, t- over 20 years after 9 11, and the 9 11 truthers are still m- making the argument that the Bush administration was in on it. Well, who? Who was in it? Name names, right? Not one person has come forward that you know broke up with or divorced their spouse and <laughs> and, and wants to uh, blow the whistle that you know he, he was in on it. He planted the explosive devices in the World Trade Center building, or the you know WikiLeaks. There's some documents showing people that were paid to plant explosive devices in the World Trade Center building. There's nothing like that, so that tells us that you know that that conspiracy theory is very likely untrue. Same thing with QAnon and, and those.
0: Well, indeed, it's not It's not my own original observation, unfortunately, but it has been pointed out that it would be literally cheaper and easier to put people on the moon than construct a vast conspiracy to pretend you had when you in fact hadn't. But I, I did want to ask, following on from that, on the basis certainly of your own plentiful interactions with conspiracy theorists, is when we're talking about the really out there stuff, the QAnon stuff, or the idea that the Clinton- Family is running a sex trafficking ring, Come Murder Incorporated, out of a Washington, D.C. area pizza parlor. Do you get the impression that people <laughs> mm-hmm. actually literally believe this stuff to be true, or is it more, are they kind of articles of faith in the way that somebody might be a committed Christian and a regular church goer, but probably thinks it's not really that likely that Noah literally put two of every kind of animal in an ark?
3: Yes, definitely more of the second kind. I call that a kind of a proxy conspiracism or tribal conspiracism. It's the kind of thing our group believes. You know, if you took, if I took somebody who was a Pizzagate QAnon believer to the Comet Ping Pong pizzeria in Washington D.C. and showed them, look, there's no basement, there's no pedophile <laughs> ring going on here. It's not like they're going to go, well, in that case, I'll vote for Hillary. You know, they were never going to vote for Hillary. They don't like Hillary. They don't like the Clintons. They don't trust the Democrats. You know they hate the libtards you know they, they want to turn america into a communist nation we can you know, whatever it is it's it's it, it, the specific conspiracy theory is not what's important it's what it stands for so it's a little bit like faith as you said that's a really a good analogy and a lot of them are like that so you mentioned the you know the dakota crash how many people said they believe in that something that didn't even happen just a made-up conspiracy theory well this is one of the limitations of self-report data by social scientists from mm. surveys. You don't really know what somebody's thinking in their head when they tick the box, like the famous study showing that people who think Princess Diana was murdered also uh, are more likely to think she faked her death and is living somewhere with Jody Fayed and Elvis or whatever. <laughs> well, they, they can't both be true, and no one's so dumb to hold you know conflicting beliefs like that. But, it's a, but in that case, it's a proxy. I don't trust government agencies, I don't trust mainstream media stories, I don't trust the official narrative of anything, and so I'm going to reject it all and accept whatever the alternative narrative is. And you know, so that's a kind of a a larger, uh, I don't know, paranoia or conspiracism uh, underlying the specific beliefs
0: that was Michael Shermer speaking to me earlier and Michael's new book conspiracy why the rational believe the irrational is out now now next month Sotheby's will auction Mirnau Mitkirch 2 a 1910 work by Vasily Kandinsky and advance notice is that bidders who cannot scrape together at least 42 million US dollars or so are likely to be disappointed whoever does take it home will be buying a remarkable story as well as a remarkable painting its previous owner the pre-war collector Johannes Stern was murdered at Auschwitz, and from 1951, the painting hung in the Van Abbey Museum in Eindhoven before being returned to the Stern-Lippmann family after a protracted legal dispute. More than a hundred works once owned by Stern-Lippmann are still being tracked, including pieces by Munch and Renoir. Um, Philippe, something related to this is a bit of a recurring theme uh, in recent times, the idea of returning artefacts to where they should always have been and from whom they should not have been taken. The thing is, though, we still haven't figured out any hard and fast rules, have we? The row seems to have to be had afresh over every single one of them. Yeah, it's a very complex issue, of course. And here it relates to the
2: spoliations and the thefts uh, committing during the Second World mm. War against the uh, Jewish people uh, who were sent, uh, arrested, sent to the desk uh, camps. That's the case of this uh, family here, Stern, and it's it's very moving, I think, because beyond the the, the work of art of Kandinsky, beyond the, the price, it's gonna it's gonna sell. I think it's uh, thinking of, about that family. You know, apparently they had uh, up to uh, about hundreds uh, mm-hmm. of art which have been uh, spoliated and disseminated around some uh, well-known museums now, having uh, sort of some of them. And uh, so it, it is really about spoliation and theft uh, to individuals uh, during the war, Jewish people. And of course, when uh, when it is the case, uh, whenever it is the case, and it is possible, there should be return and, uh, and and to to the to the family, because of course, those peoples are no, are no longer there now. And um, there's a lot of story like this in uh, in in France. I know, for instance, the uh, anti-Semitic writer Louis, Louis Ferdinand Celine. Uh, there was uh, recently, a year ago, his unpublished manuscript found in a flat. It turns out that the flat he was occupying during the war, and he had left the manuscript before fleeing to Germany uh, just at the very end of it to, 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 to escape, you know, the, the allied forces, had been uh, uh, stolen or taken over uh, from, from a Jewish family. Mm. Been. So, you know, lots of stories. It's very sad. It's very moving. And I think uh, it, it's incredible that over 70, 80 years after the end of the war, we're still not, uh, the, the, those stories are still going on, you know, the, the, the restitution of, of those uh, of this property it's still going on in some cases i i know it's uh, it's it's just impossible to 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 arrive at, at, a, at a solution
0: nadine do you shift a, a sense rather a shift in the thinking on this is there now a greater inclination to extend benefit of the doubt to the descendants because as I was saying the row over this painting has been going on forever. Uh, there was a similar one over another Kandinsky uh, which went back to the family last year from a Dutch court but the same Dutch court had previously awarded it to the museum um, on the grounds that the museum had just had it forever and none of this was really the museum's fault um, and then changed their minds back again.
1: This is a theme that, you'd say, that you see not just with like Holocaust restitution but also with like colonialism, the mm. high work on um, repatriating a Benin bronze that was at my college at university that was stolen, and the college wanted to loan it back to Nigeria, and all all these weird conversations, and then eventually the obvious. What obvious thing to do was give it back and sometimes it feels that the institutions or organizations that get these objects the reality is they don't want to let it go like that that's what it Mm. comes down to you know there's lots of speculation about it british museums a classic example right it's full of stolen stuff (laughs) but people don't want to let it go (laughs) and that's as simple as it goes and people try and make these intellectual and complicated arguments for it when the reality is you stole it give it back yes you're going to have empty museums that's just how it, how it is. This is. This is what restorative justice looks like. Um, so, yeah, and it is sad that we're still having these conversations so long after the Holocaust and all this stuff hasn't been rectified. But, yeah, I think it's right. Give it back to the families. It should, not, it should never have been taken. You obviously can't give it back to the people it was taken from. Indeed not. Because they, they've died. But the least you can do in, in their memories, is return it to the families of which it was stolen, at least in, in my view.
0: Um, Philippe, though, does it, does it strike you as strange? Because as you were saying earlier, that this, we're, we're, they're having this conversation about this particular artwork, uh, yeah, 80, 80, 70, 80 years after World War II, that the further away we get from the event, there is that sort of greater sympathy towards the descendants trying to get their ancestors' stuff back. It's right, and it because simply it took a very long time
2: for this sort of uh, conversations to start, you know, for, mm. for the sort of immediate uh, post-war period. And even 20, 30 years after, of course, uh, there was very, very little, little talk. So I think it's become, and I think beyond the uh, sort of spoliation of, of uh, Jewish families during the war, I think that you can, it's, it's a story you can sort of... Uh, uh, which also impacted uh, several uh, nations, countries, and, and 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 peoples. I think in the end, a, a theft is a theft. You know, it remains a theft, and and you, it's not the passing of time which will change it. So uh, I think whenever it is possible, yes, it's a question of of justice, and of course, there's a lot of money attached to it. But I think those those works of belong to a family once, and they should return to to their descendants.
0: Well, finally on today's show, France is struggling with an overabundance of wine. While there would seem an obvious solution, the glut is apparently so bountiful as to exceed the efforts of the thirstiest urnophile. Accordingly, France's Ministry of Agriculture proposes to spend 160 million euros on turning the surplus into industrial alcohol. Though I am able to recall a dishevelled bistro I visited in Lyon a few years ago, which appeared to have made a head start on this. The problem appears to be. In some, too much wine is being produced and not enough of it is being drunk. Uh, Philippe, has everyone just realised that Australian wine is better? <laughs> I agree with you. No, no, I'm just joking, just joking. But you have good wine
2: too. Yes, I'm. Uh, uh, oh, shocking! Yes, it's very shocking that uh, what the French are going to do to to sort of spoil their, their good wine and and to sort of uh, make industrial alcohol. But I think yes, probably there's too much alcohol being made, or the reason for it is
0: that people drink less and less wine. Well, I think in, in, that's a, that's in, Indeed they do, Philippe, and I did want to ask about this because I have numbers. 70 years ago French people drank an average an average, so you can't even begin to imagine the consumption of the outliers, an average of 130 litres wa- of wine a year. Um, it's now down to 40, which is barely a bottle a week. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> yes. it's, 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 yes. it's, it's embarrassing, yes. isn't
2: it? It's very embarrassing and it's also embarrassing how young I was given my first glass of wine. So I, I don't think parents would do that. My parents are very responsible and good people. But I think it was part of a tradition when you were, say, a teenager to, uh, let's let's have a glass of wine, taste what wine that's sort of uh, the taste of wine. And yes, I think there's something. I, I learned a lot about wine when I was in France. I, I'm sort of less interested now in it. I think wine, people drink less wine, including in France. I think youngsters tend to go for different types of alcohol. Not, beer is also very fashionable and... and so I think that's probably the reason and, and also there France has been facing the competition of other nations mm-hmm. now, I think, and I think probably took them a while for acknowledging that, yes, all the, all the countries could make good wine, notably Australia <laughs> and uh, the New World and uh, America and Latin America. And probably, yes, if you look at the UK, uh, because of the taxes, French wine is very expensive. Uh, so, yes, there's competition. And it's, uh, what well, I think probably I had this, that conversation with wine producers in France and I, I was explaining to them, you know, there's big competition outside of France. Don't think people will naturally go to the French wine. It's expensive.
0: So, make sure that the wine you produce is good. Uh, Nadine, another curious number that I have discovered while researching this is that red wine sales in French supermarkets are down 15% in a year, which is a, a shocking uh, fall off. But it's a much greater decline than the 3 or 4% recorded by white wine and rosé, both of which are hideous.
1: Yeah, interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. No. no. But also, maybe... I don't know what the cost of living crisis is like in France, but maybe people are buying less wine because they've got less money. Well, I... I don't know I mean. Priorities Priorities <laughs> um, But no that is odd I mean I can't imagine Us having that problem here We Our wine's terrible So <laughs> We don't really make Good alcohol Other than maybe gin um, And whiskey uh, But yeah no It's it's strange to think There's a surplus of alcohol I just don't think That would happen here But maybe it's got Something to do With the cost of living Crisis I But it,
0: is it also Possibly I'm grasping here Slightly a, a post-Covid thing Because obviously A great deal of wine Gets sold to people Who have gone out For a nice meal yeah, Or that's... even a nasty one one. Um, and, and for quite a while, that wasn't possible.
1: Yeah, likely so as well. That's probably that. Although a lot of people did drink a lot at home. I mean, during lockdown, <laughs> I drank a lot of red wine. Um, so I definitely drank more red wine than I do now. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. But, um, you know, industrial level alcohol, still useful. Still well, got, got in, practice, in, practical indeed, uses.
0: Indeed. Um, Philippe, just just finally on this. Do you anticipate any sort of political ramifications somehow to this wine glut? Is, is there some way that this is going? to end up as everything in France seems to, with large numbers of your country folk, throwing <laughs> cafe tables at the gendarmes? It's a
2: good question. One thing's for sure is that Macron and his government are not going to brag about that because I don't think it uh, sounds good to, you know, uh, sort of uh, this nation of pride, the wine producers, you know, to say, well, we are also <laughs> wasting the good the wine and, and turning it into in- 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 industrial alcohol. So I don't think they're going to publicize it very widely.
0: Philip Malia, Nadine Bachelor-Hunt, thank you both for joining us. That is it for this edition for the Monocle Daily. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamantuan. and our sound engineer was Callum McLean. Playing us out, Bert Bacharach who has died at the age of 94. Now anyone listening to this will be able to call to mind dozens of Bacharach compositions. His instantly timeless melodies, often carrying lyrics by his songwriting partner Hal David, were sung and this is a necessarily incomplete. Complete list we don't have all day by Aretha Franklin, Roberta Flack, the Walker Brothers, Elvis Costello, Tom Jones, Dion Warwick, Dusty Springfield, Gene Pitney, the Drifters, and the Shirelles. Our choice of tribute is chosen not merely for its insufferable niche hipster cachet, but by way of demonstrating the reach of Bacharach's influence and the era and genre transcending nature of the unforgettable tunes he conjured with frankly outrageous insouciance. This is New South Welsh new wave band The Reels, who had a hit in Australia back in. 1982 with their version of the Burt Bacharach Hal David standard This Guy's In Love With You. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.
1: Yes
0: i
3: in love And what I